And open your Bibles, please, to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11, verse 1. Our series is Strength for Today, Hope for Tomorrow, from the book of Revelation. Revelation 11, verse 1, and this is the Word of God. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar of those who worship there. Uh, but do not measure the court uh, of the outside, the t- outside of the temple. Leave that out, for it's given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he's doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. They have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Join me. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father, these are difficult words, but they're your words, so they're certain and they're true. And so we're asking for your Holy Spirit's help understand what you're saying to your church here. Father, how it applies to the way we think and live and walk each day, we would pray. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Beauty and the Beast had a wonderful fairy tale ending. Witnesses and the Beast has no such ending. Today, in fact, we're going to see that the story ends with the witnesses dead, uh, uh, and it'll be weeks before we learn the fate of the beast. The story's told in chapter 11, and that, again, perhaps the most difficult chapter in Revelation. People debate, they discuss its details, and I want you to remember, godly people who are equally committed to the text uh, want to be faithful to it, do disagree on what the Scripture means here. Now, since a person's understanding of Revelation 11 very much depends on their overall understanding of the book, uh, let me remind you where we're coming from this morning. It's critical to remember that the 22 chapters in Revelation are not chronological in sequence in the sense that there's chapter 1, then the events of chapter 2, then chapter 3, then chapter 4, then chapter 5, all the way through to 22. Rather... Revelation covers the period of time from the ascension of Jesus until the return of Jesus, His second coming. Uh, And as such, it takes a look at that period of time from a variety of perspectives, uh, different lenses, if you will. It tells the same story again and again, uh, and usually with some increasing detail each time. In other words, Jesus writes the letters to the the seven churches, and at the same time, we have the, uh, the seven seals. At the same time, we have that first interlude that we saw in the seals uh, in heaven. At the same time, we have the seven trumpets. And at the same time, we have the interlude that's before us this morning, that's between trumpets six and seven, uh, and we've been looking at it in chapters 10 and 11. 
So we understand Revelation from that perspective. It's going to impact how we look at chapter 11. And certainly there are some tantalizing details that provide a lot of speculation. You know, two witnesses, or 1,260, uh, or three and a half, 42 months. Uh, Revelation's filled with symbolic language because it is apocalyptic literature. And that's the genre that we have here in the first century, and it's, it has heavily symbolic language. Of course, the Old Testament helps us immensely as well. Revelation is filled with allusions to the Old Testament. I mean, that's John's field of reference. The Old Testament is John's wheelhouse, so to speak. Uh, that means that CNN, Fox News, Gainesville Times, Twitter, and TikTok are not as nearly helpful in discerning what Revelation means as the Old Testament is for us. All right, keep that in mind. In Revelation, we said before, it's not a puzzle for us to try to figure out um, when Jesus comes again, the date of that. There are no dates for creation in the first chapter, 11 chapters of Genesis. It's not intended to give us dates. And there are no dates intended to be given to us in Revelation that can be reasoned out. Rather than helping with a prediction of Christ's return, Revelation's focus is to give us hope, to give us encouragement, to give us strength as we walk through this world as witnesses for Jesus Christ. In fact, that's the, the, the assignment John received last week in the first scene of this two-scene vision. He got a renewed call to proclaim the gospel. And now we come to the second scene. And again, we're still in the interlude between trumpets 6 and 7. And to be sure, it's strange, it's difficult, uh, and uh, somewhat violent, in fact. Our goal then is, see if we can do this, is to keep it simple uh, and to find strength and hope for uh, the challenge God gives us. So let's, let's go to the text. All right, what do we already know from the Bible that will help us here? Well, it says there are two olive trees. You saw that. And so we automatically go back to Zechariah 4 where we have two olive trees. And we're told there that they represent the governor, Zerubbabel, and the priest, Joshua. And they represent how God will use them to rebuild the temple after the exile. As the oil flows through them, the oil that represents the Holy Spirit, the lampstand there keeps burning brightly. And so what we begin to think of is, is building the temple of God by the power of the Holy Spirit when we see these two olive trees mentioned. And likewise, we've seen measuring before. You go to Ezekiel 40 and begin there through the end of the, in the book. Uh, and uh, the idea is me they measure out the temple. Now in the Old Testament, when you measure things out, the idea is to come up with numbers that give you security, give security to the people. You measure it to find security, and that's what's here. Then there's this issue of time. You notice that we saw there were 42 months mentioned, 1,260 days. By the way, that's the exact same amount of time. You realize that? Uh, and uh, then we, we'll, we'll see the number three and a half. We'll see in chapter 12, in a couple of weeks, time, time and a half. The same, all the same amount of time. Uh, Daniel used those numbers. Maybe you remember from Numbers 33 in the Old Testament that Israel had 42 encampments during their time in the wilderness. I know that was on your mind when you got up this morning. All right? And so, so why do these numbers keep coming up? 
Well, we've learned what number is extremely important in the book of Revelation? Seven. Good, we got that. Okay, could have been a stronger seven. All right. See if 12 o'clock can do better. Uh, but seven is a whole number in the Bible. It's a complete number. How many days are there in a week? Good. Y'all got that one. Okay. Um, uh, and, and God created the heaven and the earth in the space of a week. So now, this is tough, three and a half, all right, is what of seven? Half. So 1,260 days is half of what? Seven. All right. 42 months. Half of seven. All right. And so on. Um, and so what that indicates is not a full amount of time. It indicates a limited amount of time rather than a full amount of time. And so you have this half of seven to describe uh, the season of trial in the, in the life of the people of God. We see it in the book of Daniel. But again, that's what we see in numbers. Uh, they're in the wilderness with those 42 encampments, a limited time of trial for the people of God. Also implies for us that any suffering we undergo is going to be limited. All right? A limited period of time. And then we've got two witnesses. Again, we've already seen the two olive trees. We know the Old Testament said to establish any matter uh, of, of criminal account was what? How many witnesses do you need? You needed two. In the New Testament, when Jesus sends out the 70, he sends them out what? Two by two. Uh, upon the, uh, the Mount Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah are the two witnesses when Jesus is transfigured. Of course, Acts tells us we are his witnesses. And then we read from Isaiah that as well this morning. Now, John describes these witnesses as calling down fire from heaven. We know that Elijah did that three times. He, he, he burned up 50 men when they came up on the mountain to, to get him. All right. Likewise, it talks about the heavens shutting up for three and a half years. How long did Elijah pray and what? Didn't rain for three and a half years. All right. We know it, turns, it talks about turning the river of Nile into blood. We know Moses did that. He brought about the other plagues. So those are the kinds of things we always keep in our mind when we come to the text here in Revelation. Um, so let's look at the picture John paints for us. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff. And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. All right. Again, measuring is a way of bringing security to the people of God. Uh, first, it says he measures the temple. Now, me, we might think, which temple? And, and we're not actually told here. If we're assuming a, a riding aid of the 90s, the, the, the temple of Jerusalem was already destroyed in 70 AD. Um, some people think this is a temple that's going to be built just before Jesus comes again. Uh, seems highly unlikely because in the New Testament... Uh, that after the temple is destroyed, that we're told specifically that the temple is the church. And that as God once dwelt in the temple in Jerusalem, we're told that God by His Spirit dwells in the church, that we're the temple today. And so this temple must be something like Ezekiel's, which was a vision. He measures the altar. Now, the altar we've seen is not for sacrifice. This is the altar where incense is offered. Uh, the prayers of the people of God, that's what's viewed here. It's a reminder in our security, we have access to God through prayer. And third, he's told to measure the people. 
But you notice it never does. All right. Uh, perhaps this is another way for us to understand the symbolic language here. Now, why would he not measure them? We may remember before we saw there were myriads and myriads of people, thousands, 10,000 times 10,000, 200 million. Take a while to count 200 million people. That's a big, quite a census for one person. Um, and so the point is this. This temple, by the measurement, is marked out as secure. It's marked out as holy. It's marked out as protected. Now, do you remember back in the interlude between the sixth and the seventh seal? where God marks the witness, marks his church, gives them a mark. The complete church gets a mark to secure them, to protect them. It's the same picture here. We're eternally secure in Christ. We're with God forever. We've been measured and we're his. And then we come to verse 2. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it's given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. All right, question is, what's the holy city? Nehemiah and Isaiah both use the term holy city twice. Uh, Daniel uses it once. Matthew uses it twice. In all seven of those instances, it does refer to Jerusalem, this earthly city of Jerusalem. This is the first time we see the term in Revelation. We'll see it three more times over in chapters 21 and 22. Each of those times, it definitely refers to the new Jerusalem, all right, coming down from heaven. It's the new holy city because there's not a holy city on earth anymore. So what about here? This is just John's consistent. If he uses holy city for the new Jerusalem later on in the book, he means the same thing here. And so it's a reference to the heavenly Jerusalem, which means it's a reference to the people of God. Again, it's the church. And what made the earthly Jerusalem the holy city was God dwelling in his temple there. Now again, where does he dwell? He dwells in the church. And notice the holy city, that is the, the dwelling place of God, the church is given over here to the nations. It's given over to the court of the Gentiles. And it's not measured. So it's not secured if it's not measured. And these Gentiles, these people of the world, will trample the people of God for a limited period of time. All right? For 42 months is the description there. Half of seven years. You may remember that the martyrs in chapter 6, says, how much longer would their number increase? In other words, when would God stop the killing of people who were believers? And what was God's answer? Well, a little longer. A little longer. Here it's going on. This trampling is pointing to the ongoing persecution of the church throughout this period of time. Yes, we're all spiritually safe in God, in Christ. We're spiritually safe for all eternity. But none of us is physically safe in our lives on the planet Earth. I mean, we're all, should Jesus tarry, we'll all die physical deaths. And some will die because of persecution. And that's the picture here. And so we see the persecution today. We see it in Nigeria right now going on. Uh, almost every week we read about that. And it's elsewhere around the world. Yet even as people are physically killed, we know that spiritually they're preserved. 
vulnerably physically, through persecution, because the world rejects our message. And that's when we meet the two witnesses. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. All right. Two new characters, two witnesses. When we first know what they're doing, they're prophesying. All right? They're making the message known. That's just what uh, John was commissioned to do back in the, in the first scene, back in chapter 10. We saw John charged with the same thing last week. Notice for how long? 1260 days. Uh, the exact same amount of time that the courts of the Gentiles are going to be trampled up above. All right? Uh, 42 months. We know they're wearing sackcloth. Indicates they're in mourning. All right, what are they mourning over? Well, sin and rebellion against God. Sackcloth always called for repentance, for turning away from sin and turning in faith to Jesus Christ. So that's the message they're proclaiming. Now, verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone harm them, fire pours out from their mouth uh, and consumes their foes. If anyone harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. They have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. All right, we are specifically told they are the same as the two olive trees. That means they're the ones to whom the Holy Spirit is flowing. And they are two lampstands. It says it directly. Now, what have we already learned back in chapter 1? What are the lampstands? The lampstands are the church. All right? We're told Jesus walks among the lampstands. He walks among His church. So here specifically, these two lampstands, John, adjust the vision a little bit from Zechariah to make it two, also called two olive trees, also called two witnesses, they all represent the church. Uh, as the law put it, every matter has to be, have, requires two witnesses. And so the church are the people charged to be the witnesses of the world in declaring the gospel. We're the lampstands that are to shine brightly. This the light of mine, what? I'm going to let it shine. All right? You learn that as a child. That's why you learn those songs. All right? It helps you here. Now, obviously... That's a very symbolic understanding of the passage. It's immediately easy to read and think, okay, who are, these, who are these two people? And that does create a lot of speculation. You know, who would they be? When do they prophesy? Before the fall of Jerusalem? Before the return of Christ? And indeed, it sounds like they're pretty ferocious. They can call down fire and burn up people. Wouldn't you like to be able to do that sometimes? All right? Uh, and uh, they can pray and it won't, it won't rain. They can cause a famine. All right? Uh, they can go outside and turn, turn the, the puddles on the parking lot into blood if they want to. All right? So that says they're like Elijah to us. They're like Moses, but they're not Elijah and Moses. Maybe you remember what the Lord told Jeremiah. I'm making my words in your mouth a fire. And this people would. And the fire shall consume them. So Jeremiah 5.14... But that doesn't mean God's turning Jeremiah. Go back and look at his life. He didn't turn him into a fire-breathing dragon. All right? Uh, rather, 
His proclamation of God's judgment on those who refused the message brought judgment to them. So rather than literal plagues, rather than literally calling down fire to consume one's enemies, what's symbolized for us here is the power of the church, the power that comes to us as we have the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit uh, in today's temple, the body of Christ. The church of Jesus Christ collectively has a powerful witness. We have seen already we have an extremely powerful weapon, and that's prayer. We have an extremely powerful weapon in the gospel itself, which is able to bring people from death to life. We have an extremely powerful example set before us of how God works through his people. Yes, through Moses and Elijah, through Peter and Paul, through Calvin and Knox, uh, through William Carey and John Patton. And we could go on for hours and name those who have gone before us. And today we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. And today our witness cannot be stopped. But verse 7 has some startling news for us. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Now keep in mind we've got symbolism here. All right. So when's the church finished with its mission? Jesus says in Matthew 24, 14, In this gospel of the kingdom we proclaim throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and the end, the end will come. So what happens here? We're introduced to the beast. Just giving a bare introduction to him. We're going to certainly hear more about him as the revelation goes on. All right? And he comes out of the abyss. If he was in the abyss, he was being held there against his will. All right? So he comes out energized. He comes out angry. And he comes out to make war, it says, on the church. Powerful, determined. Again, that's why I would suggest this is evidence. This is about the church, not individuals. If you were going to take on two people, it's unlikely you say, I'm going to go make war against two people. All right? It'd be an odd way to describe what you're doing. Uh, no, it's a war against many. If you notice down in verse 9, you'll see it uh, later. The conflict engages the peoples and the tribes. Uh, and the nations, the languages. So this is not attacking just two witnesses on the streets of Jerusalem. This is a global attack on the whole church. This is the war we're engaged in right now. And it is a war that has raged across the centuries. The church is certainly under attack today in the Muslim world. Go to the Middle East, you can go to Africa, you can go to Asia, all three places. It's under attack in China and North Korea and Iran and Afghanistan. It's under attack here and in Canada, subtler and less obvious ways. For instance, uh, there are those who want to strip the church, of, of get money from the church by taking away its tax exempt status. Or at least force them to sell expensive urban property uh, so that other money property can go in there. We're under attack because of our view of life. That we believe life begins at conception. We're under attack for a view of, uh, that humanity is made male and female. We're under attack because we believe that marriage is between one man and one woman. We're under attack for believing that children belong to the parents and not to the state. But the greatest attack we're under is because of the gospel message. Psalm 2 is a daily reality. The nations rage and the people's plot in vain. 
The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, Jesus Christ. They say, let us burst their bonds apart, cast away their cords from us. And so the beast and the nations of the world have one goal. And that one goal is to silence the witness of the church. They do not want to hear the message. In fact, we'll discover next week down in verse 10 that they are tormented by the message of the gospel. It torments them. Why? Well, they don't want to hear there's a God who created the heavens and the earth. Such a creator God means we have accountability to one who would create us as his creatures. And they chafe under that sense of accountability. So they counsel to fight against the church. They don't want to hear that there's such thing as absolute truth. They'd much rather live in a metaverse of their own making, their own creation, their own imagination with their own rules and guidelines than the real world with God's truth. They certainly don't want to hear the message there's such a thing as sin. Even now taking action in the United Kingdom and Canada and soon coming here to tell the church we cannot tell people about sin, about the things they, God says not to do and the things God says they ought to do. But most of all, they do not want to hear that they need a Savior and that that Savior is Jesus Christ. Uh, they don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear that He rose from the dead. And hating that message, being tormented by that message, they attack the messenger. First, they attacked Jesus and they crucified Him and left Him for dead on the cross. And now they attack the church. And they seek to leave the church for dead. They've made war, they've conquered, and they think they've killed. They think they've won the battle. As verse 7 ends, they think the church is dead. It's a relic on the pages of history. Now, if you've read ahead, you know there's a real party going on. A real celebration that the witness is dead. Are they right? Well, today we're going to leave you with a cliffhanger. That's where we're going to stop. All right? You've got to come back next week. Uh, people sadistically celebrating death. That's what verse 7 is about. But we'll see how their party turns out. So what about us? You know, I love the hymns of the church. I love the truths they proclaim and that they fix in our minds that we can draw, draw and remember. I love the fact that we can sing, we're leaning on the everlasting arms. Because that we're safe, we're secure from all arms, we're measured, we're counted, and we belong to God. Uh, and yes, we bear the torch that flaming fell from the hands of those who gave their lives proclaiming that Jesus died uh, and rose. We've sent out from our number the Moors to Germany. The Elliots to Bulgaria, the Stevens to Thailand, the Griggs to Kenya, uh, uh, Emily to East Africa. We're praying to send the Tunnels to, to Poland. And we're praying for God to raise up other, uh, other laborers for his harvest field. We've got to be bold. Is it risky? Of course it is. But is it worth it? Well, just one day you're going to get to ask the people that you meet in eternity who became believers through the ministries of those sent out from this church, you'll find out if it's worth it. Today we must pray and ask God, guide me, O thou great Jehovah, 
pilgrim through this barren land. We need His direction, His leading each step of the way. He's our shepherd uh, who will strengthen our faith, who will fill us with hope as we proclaim the gospel to a rebellious, sinful world. And when our task on earth is done, when by God's grace the victory's won, even death's cold wave, we will not flee, since God through Jordan leads us. What hope we have. Friends, death never has the final say uh, on the believer in Jesus Christ. Never. We'll see how true that is next Sunday. Let me just say, if you're here today, and you do not have hope today, uh, note that as we've gone through this, there are, are two sides in our text today. Two clear sides. And there's no middle. Uh, there is the church, the people of God, and there are those who oppose the church. You're in one camp or the other. Either you can sing, in Christ alone my hope is found, or you cannot. And if you can, rejoice. And if you cannot, let me just tell you, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Come to Jesus and live. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful to you that we have in your word great hope. Strength for today, hope for tomorrow because of the scriptures. Because of your spirit, because of your plan for eternity. So Father, we thank you, we praise you, uh, Lord. So, Father, we pray that each person here has that hope. And if not, that today you would show them the love of Christ, his death on the cross for their sins, and the promise of eternal life to all who believe in him. And then, Father, as as your people, you would embolden us for witness. Father, to declare the hope we have, Father, with, with people we work with, live beside, go to school with, uh, Father, or people you send us to on the other side of the world. Uh, Father, use us, we pray, to glorify your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.